John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1077.PR0719, certificate number 46962, Rody Bill and Tony the Pony. Rody Bill and Tony the Pony. Sounds like a, uh, is this a Springsteen song? <laughs> it's a Bob Dylan parody of a Springsteen song? <laughs> Pretty close. Tweeter and the Monkey Man? Um... You've been on the internet a long time. Nope. What are the places that you go every day? What are your bookmarks? Um, let me see. New York Times spelling bee puzzle. Um, my email. Yeah. Uh, but I'm talking about on the internet. COVID numbers. I I do internet email in a browser. COVID numbers in King County. Uh huh. Every um, day. You don't do Ars Technica or or uh, something like that? Maybe Slate or Reddit. Those things are, are bookmarked. You go to Reddit? What yeah. do you do on Reddit? I Talk use, about video games? Yeah, I use one of my many um, fake oh. sock puppet accounts to tell people to buy uh, stock in... <laughs> uh, GameStop? Hickory Farms of Ohio. <laughs> I'm trying to get Hickory Farms to... I'm trying to just bankrupt the hedge funds that shorted hickory farms do you do you have burner accounts where you go on and argue that ken jennings is the greatest host of jeopardy <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> and you know I, they all have to come from different cities so i'll you know I'll, I'll create one and then create kind of identity for him i'll i'll subscribe to maybe a model train subreddit right. um uh, a different geographical one like a florida subreddit you know create a whole persona for this person then think about how how much that person would be into ken jennings yeah you're, you're behind seven proxies. And then write accordingly. And then, you know, as long as I have 30 or 40 of those, there's usually a pretty a pretty good fan section. Right. And they're all they're all model train enthusiasts because you're imitating real Jeopardy fans. <laughs> no, there's lots of other... <laughs> they make Raggedy Ann there's dolls. There's lots of other crazy, crazy things they could be into. They could, uh, they all own iguanas. They all own iguanas. Famously... Or cockatoos. The, the, uh, cockatoos much more likely than iguanas <laughs> as far as Jeopardy fans. I don't have very many bookmarks, and it it kind of plagues me because I do feel like the internet's full of stuff, stuff that I would be interested internet, in. Internet, take me away. Come on, like, internet. But and there's also just, like, the habit of it, like, well, I've got to be on the internet. Uh, how do I get something good? Right, and and I have had a really hard time. Like, I have a friend that loves Atlas Obscura, 
And you would think Atlas Obscura would be right up my alley, right? It's like cool places, weird places, people on there looking at weird places. And what I've discovered is like, I don't care about weird places that other people have seen. I don't, I don't really want to look at, at, uh, you want to be the first person to see. In fact, it makes me mad when Atlas Obscura already has a place because that means, you know, 500,000 people have already seen it. Who cares now? You know, like there are those websites where they're exploring abandoned buildings and I think that's cool to look at once, but then I want to explore abandoned buildings. I don't care about these guys. So I don't have that many bookmarks and I often feel dumb because I feel like the internet, I'm squandering it. It should be a wonderland. Yeah. And particularly, you know, when I was on social media, I felt stupid because I was wasting all my time on social media instead of like, you know, on the Library of Congress website, looking at Thomas Jefferson's, you know, like corn receipts. But now that I have all the extra time, I don't, I don't care. And there are these great websites. Like I have a bookmark for folkstreams.net which is full of documentaries about American folk people. There's a documentary from 1973 that's only six minutes long, but it's about lacrosse stick makers and a lot of people doing, you know, blues music and, but more than anything, it's a showcase of people making short films. Well, I have it here. I never go there and look at it because it just feels like, Oh, that's an investment of six whole minutes of my time even though I should, I should be doing that every day. Video really does seem to, it's a big barrier to entry on the internet. You, ex- yeah. you want to just see something now and then you click on it and you're like, wait, it's going to take 26 seconds for this guy to fall off a skateboard. Yeah. I, I remember when it I wasn't that, that long now. ago that we were like video on the internet and then it was revealed that nobody wants to watch video. On the also, there's a time for nearly all of human history where 26 seconds would be very short commitment for an audience <laughs> looking at art. And now yeah. we're like, 26 seconds? But I want content now. Right. I mean, you spend at least 40 seconds reading the title page of any book. Exactly. Or the, you know, the publishing d- data. Like, when was this book made? What edition hmm. is this? Does this publisher have a have offices in, let me see, London, <laughs> Buenos Aires, <laughs> Johannesburg, Auckland? No, but, I, I usually skip that part. But 26 seconds, do you really? It you, seems like you don't. <laughs> you know what I like is the... Um, Sometimes do books still have this where they have like the Library of Con- Congress indexing and it'll be like uh the the you know if you're reading a novel it might be something like uh, the 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 Library of Congress categories might be like novels comma uh epistolary right uh Cairo comma novels about um uh 18th century food you know it, it'll have um all these different uh, ways of slicing the book. We have never talked about this before, but I am guessing you have a favorite card catalog. What's your favorite card catalog, Ken Jennings? I uh, miss all card catalogs, yeah. actually. I, yeah. I regret not buying. When libraries first started getting rid of them, it was you could buy card catalogs so cheap. Yeah. And people were like, oh, these can be fun hipster furniture. And now there's no more card catalogs and millions of hipsters that wish they owned one. Yeah. And you, you can't, you'd have to give your firstborn child for a card catalog. It's like apothecary cabinets. Like everybody, I don't know what people are keeping in them, buttons or something, but. Probably library index cards. Yeah, maybe. Um, one of the few sites that I bookmarked a long time ago and that I actually go to all the time. And I'm, a, I'm about to do an un 
uncompensated for advertisement for a website. Maybe they'll send you free stuff. Uh, they undoubtedly will not because what they do is feature old cars. And when I discovered this site a long time ago, it was curated by clearly by some nerds who went around looking at the classified ads uh, of very, you know, of the just local yokels, the, the, uh, the Craigslist ads for people selling cars. And they cherry picked the ones that were cool. And, you know, there's a whole universe of American uh, people that love cool cars. And the difference between an uncool car and a cool car is often the difference between pretty um, sometimes esoteric specifications, right? There's the, there's the Camaro, and then there's the Camaro RS, and there's the Camaro SS, and then there's the Camaro SS with the 454. I see. Like, each one— Sure, this is a Camaro, but it's not the cool, rare one. Exactly. And this one is the one that had the—you know, they got the extra option of the, you know, the special tachometer. And those are the little things that make people— uh, that make certain cars way more expensive than other cars and way more desirable. And then, you know, that's compounded by the desire to have cars with low mileage or no rust or uh, there's a whole subset of, of car collectors that want cars with celebrity, um, like, history. I saw the other day that um, the Mercedes-Benz... Um, grocer sedan owned by originally purchased by Roy Orbison is for sale right now. And the Roy Orbison provenance uh, increases its value considerably. It's true. Like I've seen so many cars that Roy Orbison hasn't been in Mm -hmm. and I would not pay an extra penny for a car that Roy Orbison hasn't been in. That's right. And Steve McQueen is kind of the most famous of those. Steve McQueen was a, a real car buff and a car racer. Not to me. If uh, I see a Steve McQueen car, I'm like, well, did he ever go anywhere with Roy Orbison? Yeah, don't care. Hey, Steve, <laughs> don't, let's go to the store. Don't love it, don't care. Uh, uh, Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, yeah. um, these guys had a lot of cars, and they were cool cars. Do you think someday it'll be like Jay Leno used to own Absolutely, this? it will be Jay Leno, although he has one of every car. but uh, And so these cars really attract a premium. You know, Just some commonplace Mustang, but if it was owned by by Steve McQueen, you know, it's triple the price. So, and just so I understand, these people are just scraping these pictures from online cl- yeah, listings? Not just pictures, or, or but... Or do they go, go and take a picture of the actual car? They bring the entire ad there, and it's and it was a, it was a, a way to, to um, provide for car collectors, because how hard would that be if you're like, I only collect, uh, you know, Ford Tauruses. <laughs> how are you going... How are you personally going to go, especially... <laughs> Since you're almost certainly a 69-year-old man, how are you going to go scour the Craigslist ads of every town? Because it's not just that those things are for sale in Los Angeles. You've got things in Paducah, Kentucky, somebody who had a pristine, uh, you know, one of these like super bees, and they're, they're selling it to their local community. It hasn't occurred to them to sell it online. You'd have to have a network of operatives. Crisscrossing this country, taking pictures of Ford Tori. And there are a lot of car collectors that aren't actually multimillionaires. I remember I was on tour um, 
when I was in Harvey Danger, we were on a bus tour across the United States and we used to stop in little towns and go to guitar stores because that was always a thing that you could do in the United States if, if you were out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, if you were in Nashville or San Francisco and you went into a guitar store, you knew that the guy behind the counter knew what he had and you could negotiate with him. But, you know, if he had a, a guitar that he understood was a, was a nice guitar, you weren't going to chisel him down too much. Yeah. But if you were way out in the mountains somewhere. Sure. You go into, I mean, there was used to be a guitar store outside of uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that you could go in there and get guitars for for pennies on the dollar compared to what they sold for in Seattle. Just because they didn't know? No, he knew. It was just that his local market, mm. he's he's not selling to a global market. He's selling to the people that are buying guitars outside of Coeur d'Alene, I Idaho. assume the internet got rid of all those inefficiencies. Well, and that's the thing. I went into this guitar store up in Hillbilly, America, and the guy behind the counter was a was absolute like West Virginia guy who had been living there his whole life. And it was a town of 250 people. And there was some super cool guitar on the wall. I forget exactly what it was, but I said, Hey, look at that fella. You know, how much for the, you know, and you always play dumb. So you're like, how much for the red guitar? And he said, well, on the internet, those are going for $2,200, you know, and I was hoping to get it for $300. And I was like, on the internet, how the, this is in the year 2000, you know, I was like, who, how the hell did you get on the internet? He's like, oh yeah, I'm on all of them. They sent him one of those guitar. AOL uh, tryout discs. Yeah, exactly. And that was the, be that was the beginning of the end for, um, forever finding for a cool guitar again. For, for victimizing poor yeah. rural Americans. That's right. I'm but so that, sorry, In John. the long tradition of doing that. Uh, because I had a friend in the 19, late 80s, early 90s who would, he had an old, um, like a Galaxy 500, and he would drive, he would go on these month-long trips to Montana where he would drive to a little town and he would go to the, the charity store and then he would kind of talk to the people and figure out who the old farmers were. And what he was looking for was really old Levi's, mm -hmm. farmer's Levi's. And he would find these jeans and bring them back to Seattle and sell them for $40,000 to these people, uh, you know, Japanese collectors of vintage denim, these buckle back Levi's. And he kept a couple of them under his bed, you know, in, in a couple of the Japanese collectors, a couple of Japanese collectors. No, he kept them in a freezer. <laughs> uh, he kept a couple of jeans like hermetically sealed in a bag under his bed that he, that he called his, uh, what was it? It was his like escape money. Like if he ever had to run. He could just throw he, these two. He has six figures in denim. That's right. At his fingertips. He's just throwing a bag and he knew he could survive. I don't, I think the market for a lot of that stuff has crashed. It does make it better when you actually do find something good because it's so rare now. Yeah. You're like, somebody didn't know what this was. Yeah. They're scoungers. They're scroungers. I was in a thrift store in Los Angeles uh, two years ago and it was just a junky thrift store. I looked across the store and I'd been around the store once and was sort of like, ah, there's nothing in here. You know, I'm getting, and it was, it was in a nice part of LA. There just wasn't anything there. It was all the way across the store and I looked through the, you know, through the blue cloud that's in every Goodwill, all these people milling around. And I saw a Louis Vuitton Speedy 30, which is a little handbag that you couldn't even put a, uh, 
a cockatiel in. You couldn't even put a, a little dog <laughs> uh, in this uh, in this bag. But I see so many fraudulent Louis Vuitton bags. Every thrift store has four of them. But you could recognize a real Louis Vuitton at 100 paces? I looked at it, and it just was bathed in a glow. And I said, no. And I crossed the thrift store at a, like, you know, those speed walkers. I crossed the thrift store at a, at a speed walker pace. Throwing old people and large families aside. Because it was the type of thing that I was like, how is this here? And I got to it and everything about it. I mean, it was, I saw it from a hundred yards away. Everything about it looked right. And you do see so many counterfeit purses because purses are really expensive and the right ones are really expensive. But I just knew this was right. And I picked it up and it was, it had been loved. It was very well cared for, but very old and had been, you know, the leather was just, and I opened it and I looked at it and I found the little Louis Vuitton serial number and looked it up online as I'm standing there. You know, I've got the thing on my arm because I was afraid some little old lady would come hit me with an umbrella. And uh, it all checked out and it was like, Six dollars, and it was it was not sitting behind a counter. It was just sitting on a pile huh. of thrift store garbage, you know, like old notebooks and umbrellas. No one had curated it, and I I bought it, and you know this thing is worth quite a bit of money. But I gave it as a gift to a to a young woman. But the site that I spend the most time on on the internet is this site, and it's called Bring a Trailer, and it was originally this group of of people that were enthusiasts who did this for, for fun and sport. Um, they just somehow kind of collated the used car ads and it was full of, of wonderful things because they knew enough not to just put every Volkswagen bug up there. They were obviously car enthusiasts and they could tell the difference between a you know, a 22 window Volkswagen bus and a, and a 1974 Volkswagen bus. And so you would see these really interesting cars. Often they were old, uh, stock car, uh, racers that had been rode hard and put away wet, but it turned out that it was, you know, Richard Petty's first stock car and it was in some barn sitting in a barn, but you found a lot of those like, Oh wow. It's a Duesenberg. But it's been in somebody's barn since 1948, and this thing is worth $300,000, and it's covered with dust and and bird droppings. And would people actually want $300,000 for it? Oh, well, that's the thing. It was this, like, exploit the rural. Somebody would have gone, somebody was there selling it on Craigslist for $1,500, and the idea would be you could buy this car and then put a coat of paint or, you know, or, or dust yeah. it off and change the oil and you had a car you could sell to Jay Leno. But I'm sure that the, you know, by the time it made it to this site, somebody had already jumped, right? Originally, no, right? Originally, it was a small, a small market of people. And this was the, this is why it's called bring a trailer. Because if I wanted a Duesenberg that was in a barn in Tennessee, just the logistics of it. <laughs> and then you get a car and... Like car restorers, it's sort of like buying and flipping houses. Everybody thinks they can do it. Oh, what do you have to do? But then you get the Duesenberg and you're like, you know what? To find the knob for the cigarette lighter, 
is a $900 part because <laughs> there just aren't that many. How, and you have to be like a, you have to be very good at mechanics to, to make one of these things into something nice. But this website, as you can imagine, cause I don't, you know, I don't have any money and I don't have any mechanical aptitude and I'm never going to buy a Duesenberg, but I love, I mean, what do I need a Louis Vuitton bag for? I don't. I couldn't care less, but this was the most exciting thing that had happened to me in 20 days, you know, like finding this bag. And I loved just the treasure hunting. And we talk about that on the show a lot. The idea that you could find a Duesenberg in a, in a barn. I am convinced that evolutionarily we are, we just crave looking for things Yeah, and it explains almost everything about human art and recreation. I love that. I loved it. And then what the site turned into was a place where, all of a sudden, they'd post a car like this, and in the comment section, there'd be all these guys that were like, I restored my first Duesenberg in 1961. And you're like, who is this person? And the, the, the commenters became kind of celebrities within the culture of the website <laughs> because there were these people that were like, I've owned 42 Mustangs. It's Studebaker Bob. And there really were those characters. Well, inevitably, this website became very popular with those types, right? And there are a lot of women and a lot of people of color uh, because car lovers are a certain kind of thing. And we joke that they're all guys in their 60s because there are a lot of those. Um, But then you start to realize, and we talked about this in a recent episode, the people that collected Model Ts were a generation. And when that generation died, there are no millennials driving Model Ts. We have a Model T surplus in this country. And this was true of 60s muscle cars, too. All the guys that wanted to drive 60s muscle cars were boomers. and They all smoked two packs a day. They all got lung cancer in the same month. That's right. And there, there are just fewer and fewer of them all the time. Now, those cars are still expensive because they're cool. But younger buyers, Generation X people like me... We're interested in those stupid fox-bodied Mustangs from 1986. You know, all those terrible cars that just like, you see it every once in a while on this site. Like, a Pinto? Who wants to buy a Pinto? Well, it's, you know, it's only got 20,000 miles on it. It's perfect condition. Somebody wants it. I saw one in the wild the other day, and I was like, good-looking car. Yeah. I hadn't seen a Pinto in, in years. Right. I mean, I the, I loved the AMC Eagle, which uh, it was kind of the first little SUV, four-wheel drive station wagon. Uh, I still love that car, and, you know, there's nothing to recommend it, but it's now collectible. But the site gradually evolved into a place where, you know, 80% of the ads were just Porsche 911s from 2000. It was just rich guys trading cars. And the, the people that ran it realized, hey, wait a minute, we should be making money off of this. And they turned it more or less into an auction site. So it wasn't any more that they were finding cool cars in the, you know, in uh, yeah. Lodi, California, but they were just waiting for rich dudes to come bring their Duesenbergs and then other rich dudes were buying. Them. No online community is good for more than 18 months or something. And then uh, it's just, yeah, somebody messes it up. New influx of new people or I'll make money off of this. And the, the brilliant thing about it and the reason that I still go there is that there are still cool cars that come up. And a lot of them are being sold by rich people, to rich people. But they are car people. And 
it's fascinating. You know, I mean, looking at the site right now, yes, there are a bunch of dumb um, Porsches and Audis and kind of your traditional, like, it's an MGA. There's always going to be somebody that wants to drive around an MGA. But then, and like Lamborghinis and, and Cobras, but then you see like, oh, you know, like there's kind of an interesting uh, old Trans Am and there's a, there's a, like a, like a funny little Volvo station wagon that when I was in high school, you could have bought for $1,500 that apparently now is worth $20,000. Mean, who knew? You should have got six. But the other day on bringatrailer.com, uh, all of a sudden there was a covered wagon for sale, a covered wagon that was not a, uh, like a Conestoga? Not a Conestoga, but the actual kind of covered wagon that really did make it across the plains. And it had, it was clearly a well-traveled, wooden-wheeled uh, stickers and and um, and metal plates all From what era? To well, it. When were people using this? Well, this, and th- this particular one had on the, on the canvas cover stenciled uh, uh, what looked like kind of a billboard of the era. And this one dates from 1928. And it's funny to think that we are now well into the automotive age in 1928. But, and so covered wagons were now anachronistic. This would have been your, your, your dad's or even your grandpa's kind of technology in the, in the late twenties. Right. But the barns of America were full. In the same way that our barns today are full of our dads and grandfather's cars. Right. Uh, the, they were full of old covered wagons that oh, were just sort of like, oh, what are I you never thought do? about that time when it would be like, yeah, I got a covered wagon and the, yeah, I'm going to fix it up. I think one of these weekends, my mom was talking the other day about the day her father got a tractor <laughs> and everyone in her town was, you know, like the advent of the tractor changed everything. And at first the, only the richest farmers had these tractors that basically looked like a, you know, steam locomotives. But, you know, the day her dad got a tractor and no longer had to plow with mules was, you know, like this day she still remembers, a banner day in his life and their lives. All all we have is like the day we got a iPhone. Yeah, your third iPhone. Um, And, you know, this would have been, my mom is talking about something that happened in the 1930s. So they were still, you know, there were still wagons being used, yeah. you know, in the, in the United States until the mid fifties. And I think that's probably true. I mean, and I've seen horse drawn wagons in use, even in Europe in the tw- 21st century. Drove by a farm in the San Juans over the summer where, uh, their thing is that they do not use tractors, but they're not Amish. They're not, they're, it's just, a uh, you know, we, now we can, you know, it's extraordinarily expensive to grow butter lettuce under those conditions, but we can now sell it for $8 a head. Right. And I saw the mule, uh, plowing a field, the mule pulled cart plowing a field before I saw the marketing stuff. So I was like, what is going on over there? <laughs> Super hipsters, right? They're just the most hipster in the world, all the way back to mules. And then we ate someplace in town <laughs> later that week, and uh, they were like, yeah, we get all our uh, produce from uh, No Tractor Farms or whatever right. it's um, called. Anyway, this wagon, on the, and this wagon is up for sale on this auction site. This is uh, still this no, but uh, it just ended. I was going to go buy it as we were recording. This is back in February and give it to you. Thank you. Uh, and this is not the type of thing I would want. Anything you know, I wouldn't want it. It's not 
Too bad. Something I would use. Too bad. I just you bought, just you bought it. Actually, it's still for sale, mm-hmm. um, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but but this well weathered wagon on the side of it, it says Pioneer Covered Wagon and Famous Pony. And famous pony. And famous pony. Ponies included. Pony is included. This is the this is a, the, the big type at the top of the. Does it look like kind of a circusy it, thing? Like it the, does. Like the like the the charlatan that picks up Dorothy at the beginning of Wizard of Oz. It does. It's Crowned basically like heads of Europe. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. And then underneath it says, "Left New York, January fifteenth, nineteen twenty-eight, for San Francisco, California." And then it goes on to say, "Mexico, Canada." Europe and Africa. Well, hold on. <laughs> I was with you until the comma after Mexico. Yeah. Um, it says it covered 39,200 miles by land and 24,325 miles by sea. See, back then, odometers were just big signs on the side of your vehicle. <laughs> right. And you can imagine like him ticking off how many miles across the sea he's going in this covered wagon. Uh, it took four years and eight months to make the tour. The only pony in the world to make the trip, Tony the Pony, pulling this covered wagon and Rody Bill riding on the on the uh, the spring loaded box. Uh, Tony the po- Pony is a literal pony that was pulling this thing through four continents, and it was Tony the Pony the entire time. Four year, four and a half years. Tony the Pony, is poor it, little pony. Is it of a size where a pony could could pull it? Well, it's an old. It's it's not one of the uh, Conestoga wagons. It's a you know it's a wagon that's basically big enough for a cot for Rody Bill and presumably some feed for Tony the Pony. I feel bad for Tony the Pony. Well, you know a pony's got a. Make a living too. I mean, Tony the Pony probably had better oats than half the ponies in the world. Tony the Pony just sounds like a sex hustler from a seventies movie. <laughs> he I, does. Kind I can't. Of. I can't imagine him as a as a uh, Bill the Pony type hey, from Middle Earth. It's Tony the hey, Pony. Tony the Pony. Finger guns. <laughs> uh, and so I was. I saw this ad and I was intrigued. And it turned out that this covered wagon had after uh, Rody Bill and Tony the Pony had made this grand tour of the world and you can you can just picture them clop 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 uh yeah they're not making good speed no it's a pony and this is a wood-wheeled covered wagon and imagining the roads of the world in 1928 is it's basically half the half the the Travel must have been on essentially the Oregon Trail. America's roads were in terrible shape, yeah. much, much less uh, Europe and Africa and wherever else he was going. Right. And I mean, they, they were in terrible shape because most of them weren't roads yet, right? Mo- yeah. uh, Macadam hadn't even been put down. There wouldn't was, even be gravel for most of America. Right. These would be dirt roads. Dirt roads. Uh, Mud. Dusty in the summer, muddy in the rain. And what's, uh, what's, what's even crazier is that he left New York January 15th. <laughs> so not like the best pony traveling weather. Um, but then I'm sure he was on Roman roads for part yeah. of the trip. Uh, after this trip. So this is one continuous trip. He didn't get to San Francisco and then years later decide he was taking uh, a European I tour. I think he probably turned around and either went to, or either he went through Canada and Mexico on the way or turned around and went back through those things. I mean, he had to get to Europe somehow and presumably didn't leave via ship from San Francisco. Yeah. What kind of ship is he getting on? With his pony. With a pony. It's a pony carrier. Can you, I mean, would there have been some kind of freight ship? Yeah, must have. I mean, things had to get around the world, even back then. 
I mean, 1928, you're into the steel hold steamship era. Yeah. And they're sure. But it's not going to be a passenger liner if you're trying to bring your pony. Well, down in, down in steerage. I mean, I'm sure that there were people, uh, at, at the Kentucky Derby that were importing Arabian horses. Oh yeah. You know, and, and then I've seen the black stallion. There it is. Sometimes the ship sinks and the, and the stallion swims to safety. There it is. This entry in the omnibus is brought to you by indeed.com. And this, this one speaks to John and me because like most podcasters, we are small business owners. And we also talk to a lot of small business owners. We do. We, we travel the highways and byways of this great land meeting America's great entrepreneurs. And you know, a lot of small business owners have to think about hiring. That's one of the, that's one of the toughest things a small business person has to do. Hire well, the right people. What a nightmare. You well, know, it's the future of your organization and it's the, that least reliable of things, the human psyche. Right. All you have to do is hire one wrong person who turns out to be carrying a, a fatal epidemic. They could be an anarchist holding a, like a literally a sparking hissing bomb. Or three kids in a trench coat. I mean, it's hard to see how they would get through the interview with the bomb. Well, Indeed.com is going to help you as a small business person not hire an anarchist with a bomb. If they put that in their resume. <laughs> they help you find quality candidates uh, with their Indeed Instant Match program. They've got a database of millions of resumes. So they can match great candidates for your opening, no matter what it is. So you can do the job you really need faster, which is meet and hire these people. That's right. You need to meet and hire these people and eliminate three kids in a trench coat. And unlike some hiring sites, which actually feature three kids in a trench coat, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. There's no long-term contracts, so you're not in any kind of... uh, onerous arrangement you can't get out of. You can pause your account at any time. You only pay for the services you really need. And there is zero wait to see a list of great candidates for whatever you're hiring for. Once your quality shortlist fast, you need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. This is the best offer that Indeed has available anywhere. You'll get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. That's Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Again, Indeed.com slash Omnibus. I can't emphasize enough how this is Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Say it one more time. Indeed.com slash Omnibus. I've got it. I've taken note. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. The covered wagon then was displayed at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. Okay, this was going to be my question. Is there an audience for this, or is he just doing this as because as, he's an, uh, an oddball? So at this point, I was very intrigued by Rody Bill and Tony the Pony, and so I started to uh, try and figure out what was going on here. Yeah. And in the course of it, um, I discovered that uh, Rody Bill, who was a, a veteran of World War One, uh, was doing a thing that surprisingly was very commonplace, which was, as you surmised, in the family of patent medicine selling. Um, but it was a a kind of vocation, in the sense that Rody Bill 
would clop, clop, clop into your little small town. And you're excited about anybody coming to town. And you're like, what is this? And he's got a big billboard on the side of his thing, and he pulls up in front of the town square. And He's been to Canada. He's been to Africa. He's yep. got stories. Tony the Pony, I'm sure, was a, was a fun pony for kids to pet. Might wear a hat. Tony the Pony almost certainly had a straw hat. And the townspeople would all crowd around. Hey, did you hear? There's this guy that went around the world. And they would all come and uh, and Rody Bill would put out his hat or or rattle a tin can. Do you and, think he's selling anything or so you don't think he has uh, unguents in the back? So there, uh, the tradition among these, which what what are a kind of show people, uh, and there it turns out turns out in researching this that this was a big thing. Starting in the late, you know, mid to late 19th century and going really all the way up to and through World War II. It's a kind of carny, basically. It is, right? And you, 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 you can think of a horse-drawn cart coming and sharpening your knives or selling pots and pans. A tinker. Uh, these were people that even in my dad's uh, life in Seattle used to show up at the back door of the house and they'd be selling some modern convenience which at the time was, I don't know, hand-cranked water pail. Uh, Flour mill. But Dad used to talk about, you know, the traveling salesmen that came to the back door and were selling little knives and gizmos. They had a brief a sample case full of stuff. But what what uh, Rody Bill and Tony the Pony would sell is a postcard that had a picture of their wagon and that said, like, I met Rody Bill, and various other little sort of uh, gimcrack stuff that was that was definitely directly connected to the idea of buy this and help Roadie Bill and Tony the Pony keep on keeping on. They invented both the merch table and Patreon. That's right. That's exactly right. And and it was um as you say, all these small towns, they were just desperate for any traveler. But then in big towns, this kind of uh strangely rural character also had appeal in downtown Chicago. Here's Rody Bill and Tony the Pony like, ha ha. Everybody else is walking around in, in straw boaters. And this is the Petticoat Junction kind of entertainment. Exactly. And and so it's less interesting that Rody Bill has been to New York City and more interesting that Rody Bill has been to uh, Podunk, Iowa. And I'm sure people crowd around and go, "Have you been to my town? Did you go to Did you go to Fort Wayne?" Here's a country pony with with flowers in his straw hat, right? And even in a city that has more horses than, than the zero we see today, that's that's still notable. So, Rody Bill, he's a folksy character. Uh, Rody Bill is a folksy character and did this. Uh, you know what would be what sixty five thousand miles around the world. Uh, I like how his only job is going places. Yeah, and when he gets there, all he does is. He he is the guy who goes places. He's there. And that's his brand. Hey, guys. I'm, and I'm sure you're paying for the stories and stuff, right? Like yes. You're buying a cheap piece of crap inscribed with his name, but what you're really getting is you're going to hang out with him for 20 minutes and hear the spiel. Yeah, he lowers the tailgate. He sits on it. The The van is covered with signatures and signs from all around the world, Cairo and Istanbul. He tells some lies about mm-hmm. the kind of, I mean, do we think it's true? Is there any way that he didn't go to Europe and Africa, that that's just uh, part of the of the pattern? No, it seems well documented, except in the sense that none of these carnies 
are actually that well documented. A hmm. lot of the, a lot of the record of them really is in the form of postcards that, you know, you find tucked away in a book somewhere and you're like, what the heck is this? Because Rody Bill was not at all the most outrageous of these kinds of travelers. And, and it's coming from a time when, I mean, I think we kind of forget, certainly we living a middle-class life, forget how much of human life is just getting to the next day. If you can find a way to get food today, you've made it to tomorrow. Yeah. And, um, you know, we think in terms of, well, I'm trying to, you know, mortgage or, or trying to provide for my kids' college education. But, you know, there are billions of people in the world today that are just trying to get to tomorrow. And that was much more true in 1910. I feel like a big reason for modern dissatisfaction with work is that we've kind of decoupled decoupled that kind of subsistence from from what we do day to day. You know, yeah. people used to be passionate about their jobs because guess what? You were actually picking the crop that was going to be ground into flour and that you would be eating today or next week. This is it. And, right. and guess what? That's pretty fulfilling. Whereas, you know, when you decouple labor from the physical signs of what you're getting out of it. You know, it's just, yeah, I, uh, I did these eight things my boss made me do. Right. And then I'm going to get a check. Uh, you know, it's no wonder that people don't find fulfillment in that anymore. Yeah. It was the, it was Marx's critique, right? As soon as you sit there and just make a wheel that goes onto something bigger and you don't own the wheel, you don't own the thing, you don't yeah. sell the thing, you can't even afford the thing. You don't see the fruits of your labors except in a super indirect way that doesn't let you f take any pride in, in right. what the labor was. And when you think now, especially I think if you only get paid every two weeks, yeah, there's no one thing you do that is connected to what you get paid for. Now you're just, you're basically a science experiment right? doing something awful for 10 hours and then you get home too tired to do anything but watch TV. So a lot of this was based around uh, the fact that, like, here you are, you have a family, or you're a person, and you have no idea how to make money, and you just set off with a with a uh, sandwich board. Make your fortune. Yeah, like I'm walking to Chicago, and you come into a town, and I. So it's we've been doing this show, uh, this episode already for almost 40 minutes and I have not mentioned my walk across Europe. So I'd better get to that it That must now. have been hard. I can see it one of your tough. eyelids twitching. Yeah, it was tough. But on my own walk, I often would come into small towns and they would say, what's your shtick? And a lot of times in, in, in uh, the Balkans, they understood what I was doing in terms of a pilgrimage. Uh -huh. You're going to Jerusalem. And I would say, I'm not going to Jerusalem. Well, what do you mean? Why are you not going to Jerusalem? It seems like that would be the only reason <laughs> they, you would do this. Were they insulted? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like, why aren't you wearing a big cross and going to Jerusalem? Because those were the only people they'd ever met that would do something this inconceivable I see, or had read about. There weren't people walking through to provide any kind of entertainment or service. Right. When it they was, saw when they saw middle-class American or Western European people doing it, it was religious. Yeah, someone with a hair shirt, someone that was wearing a crown of thorns and walking to Jerusalem. Now, I saw on the road quite a few people, usually on bicycles, where their panniers had a bunch of signs on them, like from Beijing to Paris. Uh, it was still a thing. 
Even in the year 1999. And would the economy work the same? You stop in each in, in each little village and tell the story of your travels? No. In general, they were rich Germans uh, or Americans or Belgians, and they they had those uh, they had those signs by way of just sort of because you come into a little village and you have to explain, and rather than explain, they could just point to their pain. Justify my existence. And all done in this sort of uh, uh, around the world in 80 days. Um, they're all trying to find meaning in their own lives as I was, but they were doing it with technology in the form of like a cool bicycle. And they encountered all the same bad weather, uh, that I did. They just were doing it faster and had to worry about their cranks, uh, where I had to worry about a different kind of crank. But the, uh, the make a living by doing it. And that's not to say, put your kids through college, but like make a daily living. Yeah. Uh, put people out on the road. And in, and the first few times somebody comes through your village saying, I'm walking to San Francisco, uh, they draw a crowd. But the fourth person who's walking to San Francisco no longer matters much. There's a walking glut. There's a glut of walkers. And this glut of walkers was already true by the 1870s, <laughs> uh, because in the 1870s you could conceivably walk to San Francisco from New York City. Now it was you were not walking along a road; uh, you were, you know, out on the frontier. But there were—I mean, all the people in Oregon got there by walking, and it was only a little bit later that it became a thing you would do as a stunt. But to the people that had gone on the Oregon Trail, the idea of walking to Oregon did not hold any special appeal. Yeah, literally everyone here already did that. That's right. Or, or at least everyone in Salt Lake walked as far as Salt Lake. We didn't keep going to Oregon, but we're here. And so some of the original um, people doing this had to do it as a stunt and... Do you add something? You add something. What are, what are some, what, you got to have a gimmick. You do have to have a gimmick. And some of the earliest ones were, I'm going to Oregon pushing a wheelbarrow. <laughs> so you'd be sitting in your little town out in Nebraska and here would come a guy and he would say, I'm pushing a wheelbarrow from New York City to San Francisco. And the wheelbarrow would have whatever, his blanket and his stuff. That wouldn't impress too many people in Salt Lake. They're all descendants of, of people wheelbarrow pushers. Yeah. But um, very quickly, it became not a thing that you could, not a thing that even pushing a wheelbarrow could get you that much attention. Gimmick escalation. So it became a thing uh, where you had to do it in a different way. I'm going to go across America and beat the record for pushing a wheelbarrow. Across America, like a speed record, speed record. So there was a there was a uh, a guy by the name of L. P. Fettermeyer, uh, pushed a wheelbarrow across America in 1879. He was uh, he was really hustling, but he got to San Francisco and and discovered that Lyman Potter had done it the year before. <laughs> and so Fettermeyer find, found Lyman Potter and said, "I'll race you across America." And they turned around and had a wheelbarrow race 
from San Francisco back to New York City. This is in 1879. Uh, and it was Fettermeyer who won the wheelbarrow race. I bet they were in collusion. I mean... You want to you you know, be neck and neck, get into town just a day before the other guy... Who, who alternate? I mean, in across the country, I think it was fixed. The thing is, there's no. I mean, what is there? Is, there's is there even a telegraph across the uh, United States in 1879? Uh, maybe, probably Pony Express. Yeah, not maybe not till the rail. Well, the railroad got in there. Oh yeah, 1879 would have been after Pony Express, right? Yeah. So um, yes. So people knew you were coming, I guess, and their crowd would form, and it's like, here he comes. <laughs> we we see him from two miles away, and he's a- pushing a- the wheelbarrow. 1861, by the way, first transcontinental telegraph. Okay, a- 1861. So it's now, you know, they are also racing. Uh, probably the newspaper is covering it, but they should take the same route. I think. Right. Right. You don't want. You don't have to explain to every town. Hey, you're never going to meet the other guy, but I hope I'm ahead of him. <laughs> right. He's 40 miles away up the road. He took the 108. Uh, there was then, um, you know, there there was another guy at the, around the same time who was, he decided he was going to push a wheelbarrow uh, around the United States circumference. <laughs> Wait. So. Does he have to. <laughs> he's following the border. So on the Canadian and Mexican border, I get it. But does he have to just follow the coast? Yeah, he did. He went along the beach. Aren't the tides drinking? on both coasts? You know, or the third coast down in the south, just like did the entire circumference of the United States pushing a wheelbarrow? Think of all the inlets. Um, Not right. A, like you're just walking up the beach on the Oregon coast today. You can't get a mile before you hit some river. You got to go inland to find a bridge. So this was part of the reason that I I chose to walk from Amsterdam to Istanbul. My original idea was to walk from Vancouver to to Tijuana, uh, but then I thought about it and it was like, well, either I'm walking along the shoulder of Highway One, yeah, and I've been up and down that road. There's nothing, you know, it's, you're just walking from motel to motel. Or I'm walking along the tidal flats, which I've walked along the tidal flats. It's kind of lame. And also, all along the Oregon coast, when the tide comes in, there's no – you can actually get caught in some of those uh, some of those places where when you enter it, there's a nice wide beach. And then two hours later, you're underwater and nowhere to go. So I was like, what, what is a similar distance as Vancouver to Tijuana? And I actually took a little ruler and sort of roughly looked at that and then p- applied the ruler to different places in the world. And I was like, oh, look at that. It's the same distance across Europe, diagonally. Do you believe that the uh, Istanbul is the Tijuana of uh, Europe? Ooh, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> Amsterdam is the Vancouver and Istanbul is the Tijuana? Hmm. No, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, very, very quickly, there was a um, an escalation of show people. So, um, for instance, there started to be people that were going to do this on stilts. <laughs> like those coffee can stilts you make in kindergarten? Yeah. A man walked from Paris to, uh, to Moscow on stilts in 58 days, which is 30 miles a day. On stilts. I feel like Napoleon could not have done that no, on stilts. No, I could not have. I mean, 30 miles a day is a long way to walk. So this I, yeah, person, I don't think Napoleon did that off stilts. Not at all. No, no, no. To go 30 miles a day is to wake up at dawn and walk your butt off until dusk. Um, and so this 
person, whose name was Sylvain Dorman, had to be so good at stilts. You know, you could cover a lot more ground if you had tall stilts. You're, yeah. You know, you're like a... Uh, like one of those giant Uncle Sams. Yeah, right. You're a, you're an imperial walker or whatever. You're a... You're a uh, what are those? They're not slee stacks. They're the walkers, right? Wasn't that a science fiction book from the... From the 70s? Oh, you're talking about the John Christopher books? Yeah. Yeah, the Walkers, is the, that what they're called? Yeah. Well, you're, so you're, you know. The City of Golden Lead? You could totally cruise on stilts if you were good enough at them that you didn't crash. Tripods. Tripods, right. Uh, so it's, yeah, so you're slower until you're faster. Until you're faster. And, you know, you have to be, you have to be careful you don't get caught in the, in the uh, cobblestones. Theoretically, but, if your stilts are tall enough, you could get from Paris to Moscow in one, seconds. Well, yeah, yeah, one step. One step. Right. You'd probably need a space helmet. Uh, but then there were people that uh, did the trip across the continent rolling a barrel. <laughs> uh, there were people that uh, did I, it standing on a medicine ball and rolling. Oh, wow. But like rolling with their, you know, like standing on the ball. What if I'm the first guy ever to cross the continent going beep, 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 beep. You, w- you wouldn't be because someone has already done everything. There- I just think it has to be, you can't just be the first of something. It has to be something inherently good or difficult, like like balancing on the medicine ball. I mean, there was a person who, um, who went all the way across Europe or all the way across the United States jumping, uh, hopping. Um, there was Henry Benz or Harry Bensley walked around the world with a mask on. <laughs> um, there, uh, I don't, I've been to a drugstore three times this week with a mask on. I don't care. I think that this is a result. This is a yet another result of uh, the age of exploration. Yes. Kind of coming to a close. That's right. People, you know, these are people who back in the day could have said, I wonder what's on the other side of yon mountain range. I wonder what's on the other side of this ocean. Well, and we still see it, right? I mean, rich guys like hook yeah. up a balloon and try and go around the world. So nobody's been over the North Pole in the winter without refueling in this kind of a glide. Right, on skis, wearing a tutu. Yeah. Uh, and but but the the difference is that these people were all, uh, you know, w- poverty line. Yeah, and one of one of the things, one of the the um, the versions of this was doing it with. No money. A guy by the name of W.B. Jones went from Dallas, Texas to Nome and returned. And his whole and his little sandwich board said, I'm doing it with no money. Is that just a way to get yeah. donations? Yeah, but- right. You show up in a town and you're like, I'm doing this with no money. Who's got pie? And people, you know, how, I mean, how, how do you get to Nome in 1907 on foot? You don't. Yeah, I-, I mean, you don't. But he... He figured it out. And or, then, or you can just put it on the sign. Right, just put it on the sign. A lot of people did it. The, part, of the, part of the shtick was they did it as a family. Um, <laughs> a guy by the name of Professor J.A. Damerel had a sledge that he figured out how to domesticate enough five timber wolves. <laughs> and the timber wolves supposedly towed him and his wife across the United States in 1912. I would give that guy pie. Right? If you see a five wolves pulling us, I'd give that guy anything. I don't know how, you, I mean, how. I'd make you, him my heir. I don't know how you could do anything with one wolf, let alone 
five wolves. Uh, so then inevitably this became a thing that, uh, was a new form of advertising. Ah, so right. they would go across the country advertising a brand of shoes. They would go across the country advertising, you know, like I've walked 32,000 miles in, in my so, so-and-so shoes. Uh, there was, you know, and, and there was this sort of pilgrimage thing, like I'm going to meet the Pope and the Pope actually met some people that, uh, that were doing this stuff. He didn't want to. Yeah. No, the Pope was like, ah, oh, and then, uh, the next thing was it became a thing that disabled people did. So I'm going around the world and I lost both my legs in the war. Yeah, I feel like this is the um, this is kind of the variant of it that I feel like I have some living memory of. You know, Canadians, you know, love the story of Terry Fox, of course. And there, there's, I think you see analogs to that. Um, um, I, I feel like I've seen it in my lifetime. Yeah, and and to be missing a leg and then walk across America backwards. So. The, well, there was a there was an escal a carny escalation that started sure. in the eighteen seventies that only really like petered out in the nineteen fifties and and what you see I think is that there will be a a drought of this kind of showman and then it becomes novel again especially if you're sitting at the sock hop in nineteen fifty four and somebody comes up. Um, walking on a medicine ball backwards wearing a mask. I mean, you're talking about flagpole sitting and goldfish gobbling. I mean, one of the people actually that went across America did it holding a goldfish bowl with a goldfish in it. <laughs> He's a Dr. Seuss character. Like, what is, <laughs> what is happening? But, so, you know, but f- flagpole sitting and things like that are not cyclical. But you're saying this kind of was? Uh, it was. It was... I mean, unlike flagpole sitting, except that flagpole sitting would prime an audience for the idea of a stunt. Kind of like we're primed for stunts yeah, it's now. Street magic or... Yeah, in a different way. Like this was also the era in the 20s and 30s where Will Rogers was flying to the North Pole in a... Or, you know, we, we had only recently had the first person cross the Atlantic in an airplane by themselves. Yeah. So stunts have always been a thing, but... This certain kind of just like Roadie Bill and Tony the Pony going from sandwich to sandwich. And the fact that it's not documented in any, because the newspapers, the New York Times was not covering Roadie Bill and Tony the Pony. And really the St. Louis Post-Dispatch didn't after a certain Time. Small local papers might, but those are not maybe. digitized or indexed or maybe don't even survive. When I was in Hof, Germany, the woman who ran the pension in Hof, uh, we hit it off right away. Just an instant love relationship. And she didn't speak English and I didn't speak German, but you know, either of us much. But she just was a vivacious woman. And the next morning... Uh, Whoa, way to, way to skip the good part. Thank you. The next morning, you know, over my eggs and bacon, she brought a man into the room and she said, 
you know, DOS newspaper reporter, and this guy sort of spoke English. He had a thing in his hat, a little piece of paper that he said uh, Der Press. And he interviewed me, and then I had uh, the following morning, I guess I stayed another day, uh, like an above-the-fold half-page article about me in the in the Hoff newspaper. You know, American boy walks to Istanbul, and, uh, you know, with a photograph and everything— I'm sure. I'm sure that woman shows that to, uh, article proudly to your son. Yeah. Well, every day. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> does his father? Uh, I'm sure that that article is hanging in a frame in her pension. Um, it's certainly hanging in a frame in my pension. But so it, you know, it's still it can come around. I think if you were sitting in your uh, palatial manse in in Finney Ridge and a, and a person rode by on a bicycle that had a sign that said "I started in Cairo." Sure. I don't know if you would give that person a sandwich, but you'd certainly give them a second glance. I don't know if I believe them. I, I, you know, you today you're today everybody's um everybody's such a sharp, you know, like everybody's yeah. r- knows about the hustle. Yeah. And and you feel like you're maybe back then you didn't you didn't care. You you just wanted to embrace the the mystery. Sure. He's probably been to foreign climes. I'm not sure if a person came rolling into your town backwards on a medicine ball with a blindfold on who is missing a leg and wearing a sign. The idea that there would be a support vehicle that as soon as he left the town, they would put the medicine ball in the trunk and drive to the next town. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Or I'm not sure if. There's a reason a lot of this predates automotive and, and air travel. Because that that takes a lot of the glamour and romance out of out of uh, ambitious travel. But I but I also feel like selling a five cent postcard. I mean, you're not getting rich doing this, right? You're going. You're really going from sandwich to sandwich. You're doing it for pie. So not a thing that there's that much opportunity for fraud. I mean, why would you're not going to carry a medicine ball? That would be worse than standing on it and, and pedaling. But we've also lost the kind of society where you you start conversations with strangers. You know. T- Today, I'm just going to wait for them to tell me about their mixtape. Right, right. Uh, Which is a shame. Nobody comes into your town. You, th- This person would ride by you in Finney Ridge, and you wouldn't even see them because you'd be playing Pokemon Go. Yeah, I, I wouldn't look up from my phone. So the auction for Rody Bills and Tony the Pony's covered wagon, which happened on February 5th, 2001. 2001. And- I'm sorry, 2021. Okay. February 5th, a day not unlike today. It has much in common with today. A day that will live in infamy. Uh, the, the covered wagon, so this is the way the auction site works. Uh, you know, people are commenting, but they're also bidding on Bring a Trailer. And in the last minutes... Um, is this happening live as we record? It. So while we started to record... The auction was still live. And I missed my chance. You did. And at uh at 220, uh, there began a bidding war. Um, a bidder by the name of Live Studio, who presumably wanted Roadie uh Roadie Bill's I mean, it's basically like wargamer.net. They wanted the the covered wagon to, I don't know, sit in the lobby. Yeah. Uh, they placed a bid of, of uh, $14,270, and then Saturn III 
uh, upped the bid to $15,751. Live Studio countered at $16,000. Saturn 3 went to twenty. Live Studio went to twenty two hundred and fifty. dollars uh, they There were 20 separate bids. Between these two. Between these two. At which point the the seller chimed in and said, hey, um, these like little penny ante bids aren't going to get you there. And at, but you know, they kind of just. Like he thought both amounts were too low. Yeah. They kept, you know, batting back and forth. But isn't that how auctions work? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but, but it was, um, it wasn't enough and it got up to $28,000 before the auction closed and then it was revealed that there was a a reserve oh and the the seller who i don't know based on their comments they either a lot of the guys on this website are not very good at using punctuation because they're like they're 70 year old car guys and they're like herp derp derp never saw a period or a comma before this seller sort of, it kind of has an ESL feeling but they wrote a comment and they said, sorry, we can't let it go for under 35000 We anticipated it reaching 100000 I think they might have anticipated incorrectly. Until, until, until we recorded this, maybe. That's right. Until um, someone was uh, like, and I think it was Saturn 3 who was the high bidder at $28,000. Uh, he and... Penoak, the seller, arrived at a post-auction agreement to sell it to him for $35,000. And I think that's the end of the auction. The the uh, Rody Bill and Tony the Pony wagon is going to a good home with Saturn Three. That's good news. But uh, I wish I, I wish you had told me this half an hour ago. I would have been bidding during the show. Well, I know, and we could have we could have had it uh, situated right here in the middle of the bunker. We could have recorded from inside. Rody the Bills. I mean, there's probably some vestige of the of the scent of of Tony the Pony's oats. Instead, I had to do what I normally do during your shows and do the New York Times spelling bee puzzle. <laughs> and that concludes Rody Bill and Tony the Pony, entry one zero seven seven dot pr zero seven one nine, certificate number four six nine six two, in the omnibus. If you are looking for places to go on the internet in your area, you can see if any of these still exist. Twitter, we were at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings. Uh, you could look at Facebook and go to the Future Links page. You could uh, go to Patreon and find uh, John Roderick's web presence. You could support our show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, and uh, that helped keep the show uh, healthy and going in our era. Uh, you could, if you, like me, do your email in a browser, that's a place where you could go. You could send us an email at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. If you had to get offline, you could send us a physical mail to our postal address, which was the Omnibus Project at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I have a, a very tightly taped package that I've been trying to break into here. Tightly taped. Do you want to, do you want some kind of switchblade? I, I have a whole bucket of them. <laughs> I believe it. I have a Swiss army knife. My son made a switch, made a butterfly knife out of Lego the other day. And then I think tiring of this, bought one online, bought a real butterfly knife online. <laughs> so 
Now he can actually, you know, you're bringing a Lego knife to a gunfight if you don't have a real one, I think. It appears to be some kind of t-shirt. Well, what's going on here? I guess I didn't have to read this for the first time live on air. What is that? That's a whole set of cards. Is that a, is that a handmade... Uh... Okay. I'm going to find out. John, uh, uh, Shane here sent you a shirt that some work colleagues made, uh, I think using your Uncle John Christmas song. Oh, okay. Uncle uh, John. Uh, they made the shirt. Oh, actually, they made the shirt long before they heard your song. It actually depicts his Shane's boss. Uh-huh. So you do not look much like the Uncle John character on this shirt who looks well, a little see. bit like oh, a no. like a Sasquatch. That doesn't look anything like I mean you look like, like a Sasquatch, Sasquatch but in a different way. Ken, please enjoy this assortment of lightly used bin tags. This handy card stock makes great scrap for grocery lists. Oh, handy card stock. They are bin tags. Handy card stock was my nickname in college. Handy card stock is my uh my side multi-instrumentalist project. Block picker date. These are orchard picking bins for a, from some kind of a maybe an apple orchard in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Okay. Variety wick. What kind of fruit is that? A variety wick. It's got to be an apple, aren't? aren't don't all, all the apples have crazy names? Wixen. Chisel. I'm I'm now fascinated by what kind of bin tags I have received in the mail. Mm, yeah, Wixen is a kind of apple. Yep, there it is. Well, now I can... Uh, I mean, some of these have writing. Oh, no, they don't have writing on both sides. Maybe I should start putting omnibus show notes on these. The shows would be shorter because they're a little bit smaller. <laughs> I wonder if that's the thing. I wonder if because we use regular-sized notebook paper, that's why our shows are an hour long, and if we use three-by-five cards... We can use Post-its and get them down to 11 minutes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shane. Uh... And I think that's it. I don't. I can't think of anything else I have to say. Did you talk about the Patreon? I did. Well, good. Then that work is done. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. <laughs>